Okay, it says it's live. Sergio's checking, but you might as well just go ahead and get started. Yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, Psalm 119, verse 33. Okay. Uh, Grace. Man with arms raised. Look, reveal, breath. Teach me, O Lord, to follow your decree, and I will keep them to the end. Give me understanding that I will keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your command, but there I find delight. Turn my heart towards your statutes, and not towards selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. Fill your promise to your servant, so that you may be feared. Take away the disgrace I dread. Your laws are good. I long for your precepts. Preserve my life in righteousness. Mm-hmm. Good. Tough. Okay, I got a couple of prayer requests. I haven't been on the email a great deal today. I've had just one of those long days, but let's see here. Whoops, that's not a prayer request. Um, Rebecca, we talked about her a couple weeks, maybe a month ago. She had bad allergies. I haven't heard back from her, so we want to keep Rebecca in prayer. And surely, I got an email yesterday. She has COPD and is at the end of her life, and by the time I responded... My friend said that Shirley had died, so we want to pray for the family of Shirley. And uh, then uh, Pastor, what's his last name? Wixom. Pastor Wixom has got, uh, they, he was checked out. He had prostate cancer, and it has spread to his bones all the way up to his clavicle and his hips and the whole thing. So we want to have him in prayer because that's, that's going to be a tough time with uh, dealing with that. And uh, so we'll have them in prayer. and. Uh, like I said, I haven't got any other emails to read right now or things because I'm a little behind today, but we'll uh, we'll pray for them first. We'll get into that. Heavenly Father, we certainly pray for these people that uh, we mentioned, and if there's anybody else out there that has troubles or trials or difficulties, looking for homes or looking for work, whatever needs are out there, Lord, and there's a lot of them, people with uh, addictions that are having difficult times getting through them, Lord, the list goes on and on in this world. It's a fallen world, and we're stuck here in, in uh, this situation. And all we can do is just thank you for the chance to be in your presence and know that you have something better for us until this body of death is taken care of. Lord, we thank you that we can pray for these people. We certainly have a list of people in this church that do not know Jesus, and we want to lift all of them up to you right now. You know every name on that list, and we would pray for them collectively so that uh, you would respond according to your wisdom and maybe make something wonderful happen on their walk of life to uh, open their mind to wanting to call out to Jesus. Lord, we thank you for this class. We thank you for the chance to meet here and uh, open your word and to share it. And we would pray that it is handled properly. And if it's not, if there's something that is wrong in the doctrine presented, that you would alert us to it so that we could correct that. Lord, we thank you for these things, and we just love you. We thank you for what you've done for us, and we praise you, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we got this day in Christian history. Today is the 15th of July. Yep. Let's see here. We got a little ways to go because I'm in June there. Okay. We got July 14th. Oops, too far, Charlie. July 16th and July 15th. He went against the grain. Julian's Palmer 
was the son of the mayor of Coventry, England. He went to Magdalen College, Oxford, distinguishing himself as a student. He spoke Latin with great facility and excelled in Greek as well. He loved to stay up all night debating philosophy with other students. After receiving his Bachelor of Arts degree in 1550, he began teaching logic at Magdalen College. But it wasn't his teaching that attracted the most attention. It was his religious views. Palmer was a committed Roman Catholic in what had become a largely Protestant university. Edward VI, the teenage king of England, was a committed Christian and firm supporter of the Reformation. During Edward's brief reign, the Reformation accelerated throughout England, and so Palmer's views were not popular. Palmer was not bashful about his beliefs. As a result, he was often called before the officers of the university and disciplined for his aggressive Catholicism. Shortly before the death of Edward VI in 1553, anti-Protestant signs attacking the college president were put on the walls and doors. Julian's Palmer, Palmer excuse me, was the prime suspect. When questioned by the college officers, he denied that he was responsible. Yet, in the interviews, he attacked the college leadership so aggressively that he was removed from the faculty. Palmer was forced to take employment as a tutor for a wealthy family. The, then Edward VI died, and the new queen, Mary Tudor, was an ardent Roman Catholic. She sent representatives to Oxford to get rid of the Protestant professors and to replace them with Roman Catholics. Julian's Palmer promptly got his job back at Magdalen College. Back at his teaching, Palmer became fascinated by the behavior of the many Protestants who were being burned at the stake by Queen Mary, who was earning her name Bloody Mary. Under Edward VI, he had often said that Protestants would never die for their faith, but now they were. He investigated in great detail how they were arrested, what beliefs they held, and how they died. He learned how brutally the martyrs were treated and how valiant they were in death. When the burnings started in Oxford, he went to see for himself. Palmer was present when Latimer and Ridley were burned at the stake. God used that experience to begin to change his heart. Then, as he earnestly began to study the scriptures, God completed Palmer's change of heart. Realizing he could no longer teach at Oxford, he resigned and became the schoolmaster of a grammar school in the town of Reading. Roman Catholics in the town, suspecting he might have become a Protestant, entered his study and found documents he had written against the Catholic Church. They threatened to expose him if he would not leave reading. Leave he did, not being able to take with him his belongings or his last payment for his work. He returned home to his mother to request the funds his father had left him in his will. His mother told him, Thy father bequeathed not for heretics. Returning to reading to try to reclaim his belongings, he was arrested. On July 15, 1556, Julian's Palmer was condemned to death for his faith. The sheriff gave him one last chance to recant, telling him that if he did, the sheriff would see that he had financial support for life. He even offered to find Palmer a wife. Palmer very graciously declined, saying that he had already given up two positions for Christ's sake and was now willing to give up his life. The next day at 5 p.m., Palmer and two other martyrs were brought to the place of execution. The three dropped to their knees, and Palmer prayed Psalm 31, ending with the words, Be strong and take courage, all you who put your hope in the Lord. As the flames engulfed them, the three lifted their hands to heaven, crying out, Lord Jesus, strengthen us. Lord Jesus, receive our souls. 
Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The death of the English martyrs is what led to Julian Palmer's conversion. Have you been affected by the death of a Christian you have observed or read about? Acts 8.1, Saul was one of those officials, I'm sorry, Saul was one of the official witnesses at the killing of Stephen. So there you go. That's uh, obviously a hint as to who the great harlot is in Revelation. You may disagree with me on that, but I'm pretty certain in my theology that that is when it speaks about the blood of the saints and the martyrs and so on and so forth. There's really only one body that fulfills that in its entirety. So there you go. Uh, let's see here. What else do we have? We got that. And I guess we're in Ephesians 4, verse 4. Go back to the beginning of the chapter. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through, through the bond of peace and for There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. Okay. Oops, I better read that. I was kind of reading along and not... Okay, I'll read what it says. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. Very close. Okay. Let's see here. This verse, verse 4, 4, ends with an abruptness not realized in most English translations. The words, there is, are inserted by the translators. If left off, it would read, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. Here Paul is demonstrating why we are to walk worthy of the calling with which we were called. That's his words, walk worthy of the calling. Something which included all of the points which he then followed up with. It is because the church is one united body. Well, now that's assuming that when we talk about that, we are talking about saved believers. If you're talking about what we just read in this day in Christian history, there are people that say they're in the church who obviously aren't. And then there are good people in bad churches. What's that? Um, Revelation 3, verse 4, I think. Yet there are some of you in Sardis who are worthy. You will walk with me dressed in white. So you've got good people in bad churches. You've got bad people in good churches. And you've got people that have no idea that they need to be saved, and they've been in the church their whole life. So um, we're talking about saved believers when we say that. Um, uh, something which included all of the points which he then followed up with, it is because the church is one united body, meaning the believers. Okay, from an earthly standpoint, nothing could seem further from the truth. Their fingers pointed in every direction at every minor disagreement and even the finest points of doctrine, okay? That's what Jim was talking about before we started today. He made a, just a general comment on somebody's Facebook post about, you know, seeking God, and then he made just a general comment. He's been attacked with 90 posts after that, people supposing they're Christians and on the issue of predestination, you know? And just so you know, predestination is a biblical concept. Paul speaks of predestination. Therefore, it is a biblical concept. The question is, what does predestination mean? And that's where the division comes in. You get your Calvinists, and they say you have no uh, 
no, um, yeah, no choice in the matter. You were regenerated in order to believe. And as Jim noted, well, then how can you even know if you're saved? Because if it's up to God and you have nothing to do with it, then you haven't done anything. You have no true knowledge. It's, it's presumptuous and it is arrogant. That's what the Calvinistic doctrine of predestination is. It's saying I'm holier than you because God has selected me apart from my free will and you it's just a bad theology anyway but predestination is a doctrine in the bible but uh, go back and watch the uh predestination uh, parts from romans and you'll see my view on it and uh it, it certainly is not what calvinism teaches i'm sorry it's not predestination is for the believer what's that it, it's for the believer. well that's right it's for the believer but they'll say the same thing they'll calvinists will say it's for the believer it's just that god is doing it for the believer instead of yeah anyway so yeah, further, there are those churches which are not even a part of the true church. I was talking first about the people finger pointers, and then I digressed, and now I'm talking about churches that are not even a part of the true church. The problem with this is that many cannot discern which denominations are heretical and which are not. Now, why is that the case? That's exactly right. It's because they have not taken the time to simply read the book. People would not have followed after, you know, I was watching a... Uh, top tens, Simon Whistler on cults a couple days ago, and he was going through the top 10 cults, and he went through David Koresh, he went through Jim Jones, he went through all these people, and those people would not have followed those supposed leaders if they had just simply opened their Bible. If they had even a basic knowledge of theology, they would not have followed those people, and yet they did. Some of them right off to their eternal state. I mean, it's very sad, but that's the way it is. He, he also went through other cults like Heaven's Gate and, you know, obviously not claiming to be Christian at all. But the ones like um, uh, Koresh, the guy claimed to be the Lamb of God from the book of Revelation. And he was just, he was a psychopath and people were following him. There are people in the world today that say they are the, you know, the incarnation of Jesus. They're all over the world. It's it just how people follow people like that is almost incredible, but it comes down to one simple thing, a lack of knowledge in the Word. And the problem with this is that many cannot discern which denominations are heretical and which ones are not. Added on top of that is the fact that there are many individuals in the church who are unsaved wolves who simply are there to further destroy harmony within the church. And possibly worse than those, there are some who are truly saved, and yet they have the spiritual maturity of a little baby, having never developed in their theology, and yet they strut about dividing the people over issues they have no true understanding in. Probably the biggest one is eschatology. Everybody, I've said it in a sermon a couple weeks ago, or maybe during the prophecy update, everybody is a specialist on end time stuff. Everybody. I, you just, if, you'll learn that very quickly if you ever have a website with, that says anything about the rapture, or any, you'll get emails from everybody on the planet that says, well, you're wrong about this, and they take everything out of context. It's what they've heard. They don't know what they're talking about, and they are divisive. They point fingers at people, tear other people down over something they don't even understand themselves. It's, it's one, it's debilitating, you know, because I don't want to have fights with people, but at the same time, it's very sad for the people that get caught up in that kind of stuff. They're not developing in Christ at all. So, anyway, it would seem that the term one body that Paul uses is the most laughable statement possible. But Paul is correct. All true believers were brought into the body by faith in the work of Christ and in that alone. 
That is what identifies you as a saint in the church, a believer. It's the simple gospel. If you have believed that, you can, like I say, the important thing is to get people saved, and then they've got the rest of their life to screw up their doctrine. They, they can spend all of their time doing that. But the main thing is to give them the proper gospel. And once they are saved, they're not ever going to lose that. But they sure can lose their joy, and they can take other people along with them on their unhappy uh, walk. So uh, when they believed, they were sealed with the Spirit, which brought them into this mystical body. That is it. Paul says that. Here's the gospel. And then he says in Ephesians 1, which we've already done, 13 and 14, when you believe that, you're saved. You're, be you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. There's nothing else that needs to occur in your life as far as salvation is concerned. Okay? And to ensure that we understand this, he next says, and one spirit. As there is one spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, and as the work of the spirit includes the sealing of those who have truly believed, then there logically can be only one body. He is the one to determine who is in and who is out. That's it. It's not any, anything else that determines that. You call on the Lord according to the proper gospel. The Holy Spirit says, I accept what he has done. I am sealing him. I am giving him a guarantee as the, for his future redemption. Let me read you the verses just so that we have them right there. And uh, I don't want to misquote him, but we'll go to Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. You believe the gospel, and it says there in 1, 13, In him, God, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. It's not to our glory, it's to the glory of God. When he seals, it's because he has made a contract, a binding contract between himself and you. And it doesn't matter what you do after that point, he will never break his part of the contract. If you want evidence of that, look at the Mosaic Covenant that Israel has consistently violated. Just They've broken every precept that is given in the Mosaic Covenant a million times over, and yet they have remained as a people. Doesn't mean that they're all saved, but the covenant is with national Israel, and he has kept that covenant despite their failing in it continuously, because God does not break his side of an agreement. Our unfaithfulness in no way negates his faithfulness. And as long as we can understand that, we're going to be set in our theology, and we're going to have a happy walk. And when people don't understand that, they get into these churches and they're miserable for the rest of their life thinking, I've offended God to the point where I've lost my salvation or I got to do something to keep being saved, etc. It's That's a very sad place to be in because the Lord is not like us where we deal dishonestly. He will never do that, okay? In man, there is error in thinking, there is error in judgment, and there is error in doctrine. But in the spirit... There is no such thing. The church has been selected in a perfect manner by God who cannot err. Though we may not know who is saved and who is not, the Spirit does because we each, as Paul says, were called in one hope of our calling. In this statement, hope is not the object which is being described. Rather, it is the principle. We have a hope in us because we have believed in Christ, trusted in his work, and been sealed with the Spirit. That is the principle. It's not the object, okay? 
It is the surety that we possess. Once again, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. It is the surety that we possess, either in great measure or in an ungrounded and weak measure, or in whatever measure we possess, that hope, the presence of the Spirit, which unites the true church, is to this body just as the Spirit is to our natural bodies. It is the life of the church for growth and for continuance. This is why Paul says elsewhere that we should be filled with the Spirit. Once again, when he says filled with the Spirit, and he says it several times in his epistles, actually, he says it a lot in his epistles, it is in the what sense? Passive. It is passive. It is not active. Being filled with the Spirit means that we need to do something allowing the Spirit to fill us. Just as a wine glass doesn't do anything when it gets filled, it just sits there and the filling happens actively. Well, the wine glass, it will say the wine glass has a cap on himself. Okay? The cap is on himself. If the cap is removed, then he is filled. Okay? We have a cap on us. It's maybe knowledge of the word. And when we open up and we get the knowledge into us, the Spirit will also fill us. When we fellowship with other believers, when we pray, when we do one thing, the passive nature of the Spirit filling us does another thing. We don't actively fill ourselves. The Lord fills us passively. That's what Paul says in the Greek. That's the tense he uses, and therefore we have to go with it. There is not an active filling of the Spirit on our part. Okay? So, uh, it is the life of the church for growth and continuance. This is why Paul says elsewhere that we should be filled with the Spirit. We have the Spirit in full measure. In full measure, the moment that we receive Jesus Christ, we will never get more of the Spirit. But the Spirit can get more of us as we yield ourselves to God. He fills us and we are, as we are yielding ourselves to Him, He can get more of us. Okay, life application. How do we yield ourselves to the Spirit? Oh, well, see, I didn't know I had this. I just said it. We'll read it again. Through prayer, praise, petition, study of the Word, and fellowship with other believers. The filling of the Spirit is not an active action. It is a passive one. As we yield to God, we will be filled more and more. Let us take these actions and become vibrant, useful members of this marvelous body to which we belong. One of my friends called me today, and we had a nice conversation, and he was talking about his limitations in the world and in Christ, and I said, well, I have the same limitations as you do. And he wanted to know, what is it that you do to overcome those limitations? And I said, I force myself sometimes to, I never miss reading the Bible first thing in the day and the last thing at night. Sometimes I have to force myself to do it. I'm really tired, or I've got a ton of work. It doesn't matter. That is the first thing I do. It's the last thing I do. And the reason why I do that is because I do not want to get farther and farther away from the Word. And if you skip one day, next, tomorrow it's going to be that much easier to skip. And then after a week, you say, well, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm okay. I don't need, and it just gets farther and farther away from you. And as I told him, I was in a church, Grace, where I was ordained back in 2010. And before I was ordained, they had a visiting pastor, and the visiting pastor said, um, he, he was, you know, just giving you one of those motivational type of speeches, and he said, uh, I know that some of you just feel like you're, you're bogged down with reading the Bible. And he said, I understand that. And he said, I don't understand why pastors say that you should read your Bible every day. If you're not in the mood, then why would you force yourself to do that? And I almost got up and yelled at him and walked out. But I didn't. 
but I, I just, I, I was so upset at hearing that person's analysis of how to handle the relationship with the Lord. That is when you are showing obedience, is when you do something that you don't want to do, but you should do, okay? This guy is, he's quenching any possibility of a fire burning in a person by saying you don't need to read your Bible when you don't feel like it. When you don't feel like it, that's when you really need to read your Bible, okay? That is, I make a point of that every single day, whether I'm busy, whether I'm sick, I don't care what I'm doing. You know, I'll tell you what happened last night. I was, I, I'm really, really tired right now. I'm just exhausted, okay? I didn't sleep well all night long. Last night, I'm getting ready to go to bed. We've got a dog that's not well. And I said, you know, I said to Hidako, this dog is not going to last. And I said, it just, yeah, Tanji called. And I said, Tanji, let me put you on the speakerphone. I want you to say goodbye to Blessing. She's not going to be here very soon. And so last night, my favorite dog, the best dog I've ever had in my life, I love her more than any other dog. I put her next to me on the couch, and I spent the night on the couch with her. And finally, maybe one or two o'clock, she climbed up on top of me to say goodbye, and she died. And so it was just one of those long, difficult nights for me. But I'm going to tell you what, when I got up, the first thing I did was read the Bible. Because that's where your priorities have to be, is you have to, you have to put the Lord first, even in the difficult times in life. And so, and boy, Hidako did not handle that well this morning. She was, she was so broken up. What a sad morning for us. But two in two weeks. One on Wednesday last week, Fatso, and then last night, same thing, Wednesday a week later. But we knew, you know, Blessing has been, she's been a good dog, but she's got uh, several medical issues which have taken Every single day, she has to be given an IV. And so we get out an IV, and we, I mean, it takes 30 minutes or so sometimes, and we sit there and we give her an IV. And she's just, she's been so patient. She never complained. She never, and last night, I knew that she wasn't going to make the night, but she never, never complained. She didn't, she was just good to the end. But it, it, you know, there's a point people always say, oh, you must be really broken up about. Well, yes, I am. And at the same time, I'm relieved. And the reason why is because you know that they are just, yeah, they're suffering. And, you know, they can't tell you, you know, Dad, I'm, I'm not feeling well. You just know they're not. And so when they go, you think, Lord, I'm so thankful you took this dog without any real anguish. So there you go. Anyway, it's, it's not, the point isn't the dog, okay? I'm, the point is the word. The word is what matters. And even when you have a bad morning like that, you want to get up and you want to read the Bible and you want to talk to the Lord about your heart and thank him for the day ahead. You know, every time it rains, I don't care if it rains every day for three weeks, I thank the Lord for the rain because we live in Florida where we have sand. That's all we have is sand. And the water, you know, it just runs right through. I said that last week, didn't I? We talked about you mowing. I just saw every, you, there's things that you should do in life. And one of them is keep the Lord in your mind at all times, even when you're miserable. And the word is what is going to do that to you mostly. So there you go. Anyway, uh, we have the spirit in full measure. I've read that. Um, uh, yes, as we yield to God more and more, let us take these actions and become vibrant, useful members of this marvelous body to which we belong, despite all of the faults and despite all of the idiosyncrasies that people have, and you get mad at somebody, and you don't want to see him anymore, or you know, I'm not going to that church anymore, whatever. We still have it a lot better off than the rest of the world combined because we have Jesus. Okay, so that's that's what we need to keep our minds on is that uh, you know, through the difficulties, through the trials, through the sadness, we have Jesus. Okay. 
Try to put the smaller things behind you and just focus on the Lord. Speaking about focusing on the Lord, Deuteronomy 21, 1 through 9. We're starting Deuteronomy 21. I've been waiting for this now for 10 weeks. What a Christological chapter of Deuteronomy. And this one is entitled, And Atonement Shall Be Provided. It's the uh, verses where uh, they go, uh, they, somebody has been murdered. It's evident that the person has been murdered, didn't just die, and nobody knows who did it. And what do you do about that? And the Lord provided a ritual for them to conduct. Take a heifer down to a valley and do certain things. And then, okay, it's, it's how that points to Christ is just unbelievable. So uh, it's chapter 21 of Deuteronomy. I'm so excited that we're here. Really wonderful stuff. It's all about Christ, okay? Even in a book that most people read one time and they say, I'm never reading that again. It's about Jesus. Okay, four or five. One Lord, one faith, and Was that it? That is it. Okay, hang on. Four or five. Let me see what they say here because uh, you, you were done before I even got the page open. Yeah, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Good job. Wow, some one of them plagiarized the other. That's all I can say. Okay, Paul continues the thought of the previous verse. There it noted the unity of the Spirit. Now the second member of the Trinity is named one Lord. Further, the idea moves from the calling, what we are expected to do in verses 1 through 4, to the one who calls and how that position is realized. The church is established on Christ, and it is built up on Christ. He is the foundation and the capstone of the church. He is its Lord. We are brought into the church through faith in him and what he has done. We're not brought into the church by lordship salvation. We're not brought into the church by repenting, okay? I understand that people like these guys that uh, are on TV, and they go out and they evangelize people, and, uh, you know, the one, what's his name, uh, Way of the Master, um, anyway. Ray Ray Comfort, thank you. Yeah, you need to repent. That is not a part of the gospel. Repentance is something that we need to do, but it is not a part of the gospel. The gospel is to believe. Now, repentance is a part of the gospel if you have rejected Jesus Christ in the past. That's why Peter, speaking to Israel in Acts chapter 2, says, repent and be baptized and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Why did he say that to them? They rejected him. They nailed him to a cross. If you've never heard of Jesus before, all you need to do is believe the message that he died for your sins. Well, what is it? 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. He died for your sins. You're a sinner. He died for your sins. I didn't know that. And what do you do? You spend your time repenting afterwards. You don't repent first. Nobody goes to the doctor and says, I'm going to get myself fixed up before I go to the doctor. Nobody does that. They go to the doctor and they say, doctor, there's something wrong with me. How do I get fixed? And the doctor says, here, this is what you need to do. So, uh, the church is established on Christ. It is built up in Christ. He is the foundation and the capstone of the church. He is its Lord. We are brought into the church through faith in him. That is how we are brought into the church. None of those other things come into play until after you are saved, okay? Faith in him and what he has done. And also that is continuing as well. There's not something you need to do after to be saved, because if there is, then you it has always been about your works. It was never about his grace, ever. If there is something you must do to be saved or to keep being saved, then it cannot be of grace through faith, okay? 
And people need to understand that the gospel is a gospel of God's favor, unmerited favor upon us. And that is the word grace. He has given us these things. And then from there, we can do whatever we want to be pleasing to him, or we can mess it up and he will be faithful to us. Okay? He sealed us with a guarantee. He's not going to take the guarantee away when we do something stupid. But the one faith mentioned here is not that which is believed, meaning the tenets of doctrine. Rather, it is the principle of faith. There is one faith for all who are members of the household of God. We place our faith in the work of Christ, and we are brought into the faith. That's what he's speaking about here. One faith. Okay, it's not that we place our faith in him, and that's what he's talking about. One faith is the principle, okay? And this leads to one baptism. Despite the general belief by most that this is speaking of the external rite of baptism, this is not at all what is being spoken of. Rather, it is the baptism of the Spirit which comes by faith in Christ. Paul said this in verses 1, 13, and 14, which I just read you a minute ago. Let me read it again. This is the baptism that Paul is referring to. It's not going out and getting water baptized, because if it was, then that would be a part of your salvation, and it's not. That is a part of your obedience. So here it is. This is the baptism that he is speaking about. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Where is it? Of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. You're sealed with the Spirit, but you were baptized into the Spirit. You become a part of what God is doing. That is the baptism that is being referred to there. Okay. 13, What's that? 13, Go ahead and read it if you have it, because I'm writing something here to make sure I don't miss it. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, he said. We'll get there maybe at the same. If you read it, you got to read it really loud. But or by one Spirit. We were all baptized into the body, whether Jews or Greek, whether slaves or free. We were all made to drink of one spirit. One spirit. That's right. We were all baptized into one spirit. And that's exactly what Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says it indirectly. That says it directly. We are baptized into one spirit. Okay, exactly. The sealing is the baptism which is being referred to. The sealing of Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. This is confirmed by the words of Jesus, believe it or not, in Matthew 16, 16. Well, you say, well, that's, you know, I'm sorry, Mark 16, 16. You say, well, that's under the Old Testament. No, that's after his resurrection, okay? And, and so... not a drop of water in that verse either. Yeah, no, there's not. There, there isn't a drop of water in that verse, he says. Okay, so we're going to, I've got to go the opposite direction. I keep going the wrong way while I'm talking and not paying attention to numbers. Hang on a second here. It's a very short little verse, but here we go. Ah. Another page to go here. And 15, I got two more pages. Okay, 16, 16 says, um, He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Okay, and people say, well, see, you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Not water baptism. That's not what he's speaking about. Okay, so we have he who believes and is baptized. So we're going to say B-E and B-A. Okay, that's A and that's B. He who believes and is baptized equals salvation, right? That's what Jesus says. And people want to deny that this is a part of the 
original scriptures. I mean, Mark, whatever is, you know, I'm not here to debate that. It's in there. We're going to go with it. Okay. So, and then it says in the second half of it, but he who does not believe, okay, not believe. Well, where was I? Okay, yeah. But he who does not believe will be condemned. So not believing equals condemnation. Okay, so what do you see about that? There's an A and a B for salvation, and there's no A equals condemnation. Doesn't say anything about B. That means that B is contingent on A. Everybody see that? If you believe and are baptized, well, then obviously it's synonymous. If you believe, you are baptized. If you don't believe, you are condemned because you were not baptized. Thank you. And that is what Paul is referring to right there. And that is what Paul refers to in the verses you cited. That is what Paul refers to in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. If you believe and are baptized because they are one thing, the moment you believe you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, you're given your baptism of the Spirit, you are saved. If you don't believe, there's no B in the equation. because the, That's right. There's no spirit involved. And so it's not speaking of water baptism. All you need to do is put the AB in. It blows away these people that are in like the Church of Christ that say you have to be baptized in order to be saved. And then they add on, curiously, you have to be baptized in the Church of Christ. How did that work for the Church of Christ? Yeah, hello. Yeah, okay. So anyway, there you go. Oops, don't, don't fall. There we go. Okay, so it says, uh, this is confirmed then in Paul's words of Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, and 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Okay, thank you. He shows this elsewhere as well. See, that covers what you just said. So I, I beat you. Okay. In Galatians 3, 27, he says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And so there you, you can do an AB with that one as well. If you've been baptized, you put on Christ. That has nothing to do with water baptism. Okay. This is not speaking of water baptism, but of the baptism of the Spirit. One is clothed in Christ through faith in his work. In Acts, the household of Cornelius first received the Spirit by hearing the word and believing. Okay, I'll take you there just so you don't think I'm making this up. And we're going to be, we're almost done with the Revelation commentary. We probably have another month or two months at the most, I would think. And then after that, we're going to start Acts. I'm so excited about that because it is it is critical to understand the book of Acts in order to have proper doctrine. I was talking to somebody just, uh, they were visiting from Texas, and they came by to buy mangoes at the house. Mango season is over. I'm sorry if you didn't get them. You ain't getting them because I picked the last ones on Tuesday, okay? But um, uh, good mango season. Lots of big mangoes and juicy, and hitiko has got so many in the refrigerator, there's not room for anything else. She comes home, and she cuts them for a couple hours, and then she takes a break and comes in the next day and does more. So, yeah, she's a real mango head, that woman. Anyway, um, we will talk about this issue of baptism in detail when we get into the book of Acts now, in the commentary. Daily, daily verse, commentary, okay, yeah. So you're not going to do the Bible study? Some well, we'll do that it. eventually. Yeah, yeah we'll, we will do the Acts Bible study again because it was never recorded, and it's important that we do that. Because Oh, what I was saying to those people from Texas is that... 90%, I would say, maybe more, 99.3267% of all of the error in New Testament churches comes out of a misunderstanding or a misapplication of the book of Acts. 
It may be as much as whatever I just said, 99.2367%. It, it is almost everything that is wrong in your church comes out of a misunderstanding or a misapplication of the book of Acts, okay? If you can get the, the main points, you have five tenets of proper doctrine to get through, to establish you. I mean, there are all kinds of points of uh, hermeneutics, but the key five points are, and Jim can tell them right now. Is it prescriptive? Is it prescriptive? Is it descriptive? Is it descriptive? Context, context, context. 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 <laughs> That's right. If you remember those five points, you will be much better off in your book of Acts understanding. But here's what it says in Acts chapter 10. Okay, it says, um, Peter, Peter opened his mouth, verse 34, and said, oh, wait a minute, has it already happened? Yes. Um, uh, yeah, he started speaking to them. In truth, I perceive God shows no partiality. So that's in verse 34. He's starting to tell them about the message that he was called to give them. Okay, so he's talking to them, and he gets down to verse 43. He says, to him all the prophets witness that through his name, Jesus, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. That's what Peter says to him, okay? While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word, meaning that they all believed. That's it. They received the Spirit based on belief. Now, that doesn't match what happens in Acts 2. Acts 2 said that if you repent and believe and are baptized, you will receive the Holy Spirit. Right? Everybody got that? So now you got, ooh, a contradiction in the book of Acts. No, you've got a misapplication and your understanding is incorrect because you didn't follow the five principles. Is it prescriptive? Is it descriptive? Context, context, context. What is it doing in Acts chapter 2? Is it prescribing something or is it describing something? It's describing something. And the context is what? Who is Peter speaking to in Acts 2? Israel, the Jews who had just crucified Christ. The Gentiles were not introduced until, until Acts chapter 10. Actually, there is one, uh, the guy from Ethiopia, but we're going to ignore him except for another He's important for another point, okay? The book of Acts is based on all kinds of neat structures. It says, um, uh, you know, Jesus said, you're going to go from Ju Jerusalem to Judea and to the ends of the earth. And the book of Acts goes from Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the earth, okay? And then you have um, the, uh, the sons of Noah are actually Shem, I'm sorry, um, Japheth, Shem, and Ham. But they're always listed as Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And guess what it follows in the book of Acts? Shem, the Jewish believers, and then Ham, the Ethiopian from uh, the Ethiopian eunuch of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, and then it goes to Japheth, which is Cornelius right here. So everything is following patterns in the book of Acts. Okay, but that is a descriptive account. Then you get to Samaria in chapter 8, and the people heard the gospel message, and they believed, and they didn't get the Spirit. And there's a reason why. I'm not going to talk about it now, but then in Acts chapter 10, something different happens. And it depends on what church you attend, which scenario, Acts 2, Acts 8, or Acts 10, the pastor decides he's going to pick and say, this is how you were saved, and this is what happens in the Holy Spirit. When all three accounts are simply doing what? They are describing what happened at the establishment of the church. They prescribe nothing. 
None of that is prescribed, okay? Then Peter answered, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized to have received the Holy Spirit? It's completely out of order from Acts 2 and Acts chapter 8. Why? Well, we'll get to that when we get to the commentary, okay? It's all there for a reason, and if you pick and choose your theology out of the book of Acts, if you misapply the book of Acts, you're going to have error in your theology, and will follow through every single thing else that you do. Acts is where it is at. That's why we started that class, this class in Acts, is because it is that crucial to understanding. But I'm sorry it wasn't recorded, and so we'll, we'll get to it again, and we'll start in the writing commentaries very soon, unless the Lord comes first. Okay, so. Question. Yes. Uh, okay, so baptism. Uh, what we do is like this basically a reaffirmation that we're, I believe, I died in Christ. I died in Christ, in Christ. I was buried with Christ. I was raised right, with Christ. Okay. So It is a picture of what you have gone through. Right, but, but it's like, okay, so it's the same word for what is a uh, recognition. The same word that they use with the actual indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, baptism is one so word, baptism. Like, okay, so, yeah, well, understand this. Jesus did something in Matthew 28, which is after the resurrection, after the establishment of the new covenant. What did he do in Matthew 28? He gave the commission and he said, baptize in the name of the Holy, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Right. Guess what? If you were baptized into the Lord, as Paul is writing about right now, right then that means that disciples do not do that. So it must be speaking of a different type of baptism. One that says, I am going to observe what happened to me. Okay, The same people that argue against baptism, and there are a bunch of them out there that say, you do not need to be baptized. You're not supposed to be baptized. I'm talking about water baptism. Those same people do what on Sunday morning? No, well, forget tithing. Yeah, they, yeah, they, 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 they yeah. mandate tithing. No. They, they tell you that you have to take the Lord's Supper. Yeah. Well, guess what? Those are the only two things the Lord told us to do, right. the Lord's Supper and be baptized. So why did they pick the Lord's Supper as okay, which comes after the, as a matter of fact, it comes at the establishment of. The baptism command comes after. So it ought to be that much more obvious. And yet hyper-dispensationalists and other people say, you do not need to be water baptized. It's wrong, blah, blah, blah. Listen, every single person, and this is not, prescribing anything, but it is describing something, and it is giving us a clue. Every person that believed in the book of Acts was baptized after belief. Okay, every one of them. Okay, so, and Jesus commanded it, Matthew 28, 18. And if you are not obedient if, in that. That's right. You're not going to lose your salvation. You're not going to, that's right, but you have not been obedient. Paul says to take the Lord's Supper as often as you uh, do this in remembrance of me. Right. And some people do it once a year, some people do it twice a year, some people do it, and they call the Lord's Supper a big potluck, and that's what they have, and whatever, okay? I take what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as instructional. Do this as often, or yeah, do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me, or whatever, anyway. Um, so we do it every week, because that's when we meet is every single week, all right? That's instructional. I'm not going to disobey that, but some people, they, they find their own reason for not doing it. But the point is that the Lord's Supper is no different in instruction than baptism. So, I, And we'll go through that when we go through the book of Acts. I'm not going to worry about it now, but you can also go, I think it's Romans chapter 8. I've already done it on the uh, 
Bible study here. You can go back and watch the video or read the commentary. But I talk about baptism there, why it is expected, why, you know, it's not mandatory, et cetera, et cetera. I talk about it there, and it's under the uh, one, it's called One, one Baptism. I think is the name of the uh, the video. So go look in Romans and it'll come up. You'll find it. Anyway, okay. Um, but that's where error comes from, is the book of Acts in great part. Not entirely. I like to over, uh, uh, you know, emphasize it. Yes, but most error does come from hyperbole. misunderstanding and a misapplication of the book of Acts. What? Hyperbole. Hyperbole, yes. Hyperbole, <laughs> which I never exaggerate, no. ever. Okay. Yeah, okay, uh, let's see here. So in Acts, here we are, the household of Cornelius first received the Spirit by hearing the Word and believing. Only then did they later submit to water baptism as an external sign of the inward baptism already realized. Okay, that's what Jesus commanded. Because, let me take you there, I said it and you might not have grasped what I said. I'm going to take you back to Matthew 28. And I'm going to explain that again because I might have said it too quick and I want to be thorough, at least in that precept. It says in Matthew 28 and next page, it says there, um, 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, he's already resurrected, which means he already died, okay? He died in fulfillment of the law and he established the new covenant in his blood. Okay, so we got that down. The new covenant is established in his blood. This is after that, okay? He is now speaking to the church. He's not speaking to Israel anymore. He's speaking to the church that is called by his name. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Who is he speaking to? The Holy Spirit? He's speaking to the disciples. That's right. Disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does its baptism, and that has nothing to do with what Jesus is speaking of here. So he must be speaking by default under the new covenant, which pertains to all believers. There's one new covenant for Jew and Gentile, okay? There's one gospel message. He must be speaking of water baptism. Everybody got that? Okay. Disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. And then hyperdispensationalism cuts all of that out. They cut out everything that pertains to anything, and you're down to a couple little epistles by Paul, and that is it. There is no Bible, there is no theology anywhere else in Scripture except that, and they can be comfortable in knowing nothing and teaching almost nothing of any value because it's easier that way. It's and you get to control your people that way. So anyway, uh, understand that water baptism is something the Lord commanded. You're not going to lose your salvation, but he's asked you to do it. Okay, so he shows this elsewhere as well. I read that already. Let me go down. Um, baptism, external sign. Yes, the same thing is referred to by Paul in Colossians 2 verse 12 and Romans 6, 3 through 5. So it's not Romans 8, it's Romans 6. Go look on there and you can watch the baptism thing. In each instance, he is speaking of the work of the Spirit and equating it with baptism. So you have the Spirit baptism, you've got water baptism. They're two separate things. One is an obedience thing. The other is something the Spirit does the moment that you believe in Christ. Okay, finally, finally, faith is placed first at some times. Mark 16, 16. And at other times, baptism is placed first, such as in Colossians 2.12. I just cited it. I might as well read it to you so that you 
see what it says there. Colossians comes before Thessalonians. So Colossians 2 and verse 12. He says, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. That is speaking of the spirit baptism, okay, which the water baptism is a picture of that, okay? So, but you saw buried with him in baptism is mentioned first in that one, okay? In each, uh, where was that? Yes, um, uh, faith is placed first in Mark, baptism is placed first in Colossians 2.12. Thus, these are one occurrence with two separate parts. It has to be, or there's a contradiction in the Bible. The rite of water baptism is not what is being spoken of here. Rather, that is an ordinance for the church. It's commanded by Jesus. It is an outward demonstration of the inward change which has already taken place. Let me ask you a question. We'll pretend that you are all hyper-dispensationalists, okay? You don't think that we have to be water baptized, okay? When you take the Lord's Supper, because you do, because Paul says it in his epistles, okay, what are you doing? You are doing something. I say it every week. You are remembering his death until he comes. Is Christ being crucified when you're doing that? No. It's the same thing with water baptism. It is a symbolic reenactment of what is going on. And that is so that we remember the work of the Lord, we exalt the work of the Lord, and we make it a demonstration of the work of the Lord for the people in the church and for people that may be visiting the church, just like baptism is. Baptism has less to do with you than it has to do with the people that see you making your proclamation. You are confirming to the world that you are standing with Christ, okay? It's the same thing. Lord's Supper, baptism, it's the same thing. It is an outward demonstration of an inward change, okay? It, it's strange how that, that has been a problem since almost the beginning, because you got uh, 1 Corinthians where it's like, okay, I'm not baptizing anybody. Anymore. Well, no, he, no. They will use that, and that's not correct. 1 Corinthians says, right, I right. did not come to baptize. I right. came to preach the gospel. Right. He baptized people. He did. He specifically, he so it. I don't want to confuse them here. That's okay, what I'm saying. Well, right. no, the, 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 the error is not in what Paul says. The error is in interpreting what Paul says. Paul is very clear. Baptism is required. It is required. He says, I didn't come to baptize. I came to, and then he goes on from there. He doesn't say you're not to be baptized. He even right, admits, right. I did baptize these people, implying that those people were, one, baptized by him, and that other people were baptized by Others. other people. Okay, that's right. So I want to make sure that what you said is not misunderstood by somebody. The error is in misinterpreting what Paul says. Right. Paul is not saying, do not be baptized. The point I was making was the fact that it was like it became an issue even with Paul right. and the Corinthians. Well, that was, that was a division issue. Yeah. Right. They, what he was wow. doing was, yeah, it is, it's a problem, but it was a division issue saying, I was baptized by Paul, and somebody else says, well, I was baptized by Peter, and he's the big honcho, and then some people say, well, I follow Paul, and I follow oh, Christ, and they're, they're in division, and he was saying, that is not the purpose here, is for you to follow Paul, or you to follow Peter, or you to follow, the purpose is to adhere to the doctrine of the Lord. So I just want to make sure that that was understood because he's right what he's saying, but I don't want somebody to misinterpret what you're saying. Okay, so um, let's see here. Demonstration of the inward change. Okay, life application. Why is it important to understand that water baptism is not what is being spoken of here? Because if this is misunderstood, then other nutty ideas, and yes, I use the word nutty in my commentary, immediately result. Two obvious ones which are taught in some churches are one, 
Water baptism is a condition for salvation, not understanding A, B. If you, if you make little charts with what you're reading, it really can help you, okay? I, that's just a simple one, but there are some things that you can do. Uh, it's called a synergistic study. I did one on the uh, hair of uh, 1 Corinthians 14, I think it was. What, does, what is Paul speaking about in the synergistic study? And if you lay it all out and you make diagrams and you ask questions of it, you can actually get a lot of answers back out that you didn't realize you could. But um, one is water baptism is a condition for salvation because they have misunderstood what is being said here. They didn't make their little diagram. And two, there is a second baptism of the Spirit for some people. That's what some people will claim, and that's what charismatics do. I, I've had people in the past two weeks say this to me. Oh, I, I was finally received my baptism of the Spirit. I believed, but then I received, and now I'm a holy roller. And it's it, it just, people don't understand what Paul is conveying, and they come up with these things. And as I said, nutty, they are. Okay, there is one baptism of the Spirit. There's no second birthing of the Spirit. I'm sorry, charismatics are R-O-N-G, wrong, okay? So, major denominations teach these incorrect doctrines, which then, I did that purposefully, R-O-N-G is wrong. Okay, there you go. Yeah, okay. Um, I heard somebody saying something, and I thought maybe they were saying, I don't know how to spell. Anyway, major denominations teach these incorrect doctrines, which then lead to supposed superiority of some people over others. Like, have you received the Spirit? And that's their mark of superiority. I've been baptized in the Spirit. I spoke in tongues. I did this. I'm sorry for those people. They, they really believe that, but I'm sorry. Okay, you were sealed with the Spirit. You were baptized into the Spirit the moment that you believed. Anything else, I'm sorry, <laughs> you're following the wrong thing there. I won't get into, you know, it's just, you know what? I lived in Japan, okay? I lived in Hamura, Japan. San no, ni, san no, san ni, uh, midori gaoka. Okay, three, two, three, three, two, midori gaoka, Hamura machi, Japan. Okay, I had to do it in Japanese to remember it, but there you go. That's where I lived. Three doors down. Actually, it's kind of two and a half because the houses were kind of really close together. There was a person that spoke in tongues, a Shokugokai Buddhist, okay? There are people when I was in Malaysia that speak in tongues. You, she's seen it, okay? This is all over the world. I'm telling you, what you see in Christianity is not of the Lord. I want you to know that right now. These people really think that they're speaking in some tongue when they're all they're doing is impressing themselves and trying to impress other people okay when it says speaking in tongues in the bible the word tongues is an unfortunate translation because the word tongues means language language. that's what it means but all of a sudden because they use the word and translate as tongue everybody gets these things in their their head and it means a language it is a known language and somebody speaks in that known language and nobody else understands it you must have a translator if you don't then you speak it to yourself and no more than three can do it in the church. And you go into any charismatic church and they are violating the word of God and therefore it cannot be of the Holy Spirit. It cannot be, okay? It is contrary to the Spirit. But I'm not gonna get into that now, even though I just did. Uh, Paul shows in this verse that there is one baptism which places all, all people on a level field before the Lord. Doctrine matters. As a matter of fact, doctrine is the most important thing that you are going to have in your life after being saved by Jesus Christ. If you don't have proper doctrine, you're going to be in one of these crazy things and you're going to be off doing things that are not pleasing to the Lord Jesus. That is all there is to it. Doctrine 
matters. Okay. Four six. Oh, Burke's got something. No, you gave the commission, and he said teaching them to observe. Yes. You could put doctrine them to. Yeah, observe. doctrine them to observe. And that's that's right. Exactly what doctrine is is correct teaching. Correct teaching. That that's right because doctrine, well, it can be incorrect teaching. It's called bad doctrine. Yeah. But you're right. It, it all depends on what you are teaching, who you are teaching to, under what circumstances. But it always comes back to this word in context 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 okay that is what it comes down to you're right though that's absolutely right you are doctrining them you are teaching them properly okay four six one god and father of all who is over all through all and in all okay this one says one god and father of all who is above all and through all and in you all so they add in the word you okay the nu text admits uh omits the word you the M text reads us. So you got a difference. You got one that says nothing, one that says you, and one that says us. Okay, us all. Anyway, so we'll go on. Four six. Paul has been writing about the ident uh, the idea of unity. He did this concerning the one body, meaning the church. He then wrote of there being one Lord, who is Christ. Now he says there is one God. This is speaking of the Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is one God. Each member, each is a member within the Godhead. This one God is thus Father of all. It's not speaking of God the Father. He's speaking of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is Father of us all. This is speaking less of God the Father than it is of the fatherhood of God. In other words, Paul's idea of unity is what is being focused on. The unity of the Godhead is the Father of all. Each part of the Godhead has its role, and combined they form, <laughs> excuse me, the Godhead. The Father is God, but the Godhead is not merely the Father. Likewise, the same is true with the Son and with the Spirit. The Son is the Spirit, but the God is not uh, limited to the Son or to the Spirit. They are all three are one God, three persons, one essence. Each is God, but the Godhead is not merely any of the three, but all three combined. As a very simple example, time is one thing, but time is comprised of future, present, and past. Each is time, but time is not merely any of the three. Rather, time is comprised of all three. If you don't have a future and you don't have a past, then you don't have a present. I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. If you have a future and no past, then you have no present. Uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, you get the point. They all are one. They all have always existed. People can say, well, that's not true because at the very beginning, there was no past. That is incorrect because the moment that it happened, there was a past. Instantly, there's always been a past. It's just might be an insignificantly small past, but it has always been there. Because if it wasn't there, and then it's there, then it is there. It's the same thing with the future and the present. Okay, you had something, Bert. Do your triangle. Oh, uh, the triangle. Let me see if I can remember that right now. Um, uh, you've got, uh, this is the father. This is the son. But we're going to make a, a we're going to do something here. We're going to put the son up here for now, and then this is the Holy Spirit. Okay? And it's very simple. This is God. Okay? Father, son, and Holy Spirit. This is one God. But. The Father is not the Holy Spirit, and the Father is not the Son, and the Son 
is not the Father, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father, and the Holy Spirit is not the Son, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit. But they're all God. Yeah. Okay, and then you've got a little circle we're going to put down here, and you got to be careful with the circle. I've got to kind of erase that. This circle must touch, but not overlap the triangle, and that would be the humanity of the Son. This would be the human Jesus, okay? This is the deity of the Son, okay? If it's overlapping, that is one heresy. If it's not touching, that is another heresy, and they're very precise heresies. Anyway, the sonship of the there there is no separation between God the Son and uh the human son. There is no overlapping of God the Son and the human son. Okay. They are touching, they are forever united, but they are not overlapping and they are not separate. Okay. Anyway, we can go through that. You it, it, we'll go through those sometimes and they got big names for them, which I don't remember because I didn't consider that right now. But that it gives you kind of a little uh, idea of the Godhead. Okay, same thing with past, present, and future. They're all time, and yet none of them comprises all of time. Okay, and yet all of them together comprise all of time. So there you go with that. Um, it is the Godhead, which is Paul's words, above all and through all and in you all. Paul is speaking to saved Christians in this verse. God is the Father. God the Father is above all. He is the sovereign God who directs all things according to his will. Once again, you could get into predestination with that. And if you're a Calvinist, you say, well, see, he, uh, he uh, directs all things according to his will, and therefore you don't have any choice in your salvation. No, because he sent his son, and he made the offer, and regardless of whether you accept the offer or not, he knows what you're going to do, but that does not negate you doing it, okay? So directing in this sense does not mean that he mandates, he offers, okay? Anyway, he directs all things according to his will. They will come out exactly as he knows they will. There will be nothing that is not of God in God. God is, God the Son is the one who brings us into the unique father-son relationship with God. It is through Christ that all are brought into the body of Christ. Finally, God dwells in us it is the Spirit who seals us, and thus is in all. So that's a short explanation of what Paul is saying there, okay? And then you can take that to uh, 1 Thessalonians, where, or is it 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where it says that, um, uh, we'll go there really quickly, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I just said that the Holy Spirit is in all of us, okay? want to make a point about theology here that uh, people can get a little bit confused on. It says here in... Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, it says, um, let's see if I can find this really quickly. Um, uh, yeah, uh, we'll start with verse 5. Do you not remember when I was still with you? I told you these things. And now you know what is restraining. There's something restraining these things from happening, okay? That he may be revealed in his own time, speaking of the Antichrist. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he, and the capital, this is capitalized here, because the People that translated this believe that it is speaking of the Holy Spirit. Others don't capitalize it, and some, I, I don't think they even care either way because they don't tran uh, capitalize God in most things, okay? They just, you know, the pronouns they do, but not the he elsewhere, so they just leave it. But um, in this one, it says, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Okay, 
Something is restraining. People will debate, is it the church, which would be a small H? Is it the Holy Spirit, capital H? Or like I said, they may not uh, capitalize the, the pronouns or the whatever. But the point is that the church, we just read right here in my comments that the church, the people of the church are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, here's a question for you. Is the Holy Spirit everywhere? Yes, because he is omnipresent. He's omniscient, he's omnipotent, and he's omnipresent. Okay, so people get hung up over the fact that it says he's taken out of the way. Well, you can't take the Holy Spirit out of the way. It's not referring to taking the Holy Spirit out of the way in the sense that he's no longer somewhere. It's speaking of the sealing of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is who seals the church. That is taken out of the way, meaning that the church is taken out of the way. Okay, it's not directly speaking of the church, but it, the church is implied there. It is directly referring to the Holy Spirit, but not to the Holy Spirit who is everywhere, to the sealing of the Holy Spirit in the believers who are the church. Okay, and that's another thing that, another point of theology. So the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way, and then these things will happen. If the Holy Spirit is taken out and he doesn't take us, then what? Well, no, it means that God is a liar because we are saved. And God has given us a guarantee. He will not break that guarantee. Now, it, those that aren't saved, obviously, yeah. are going to be left behind. But the saved believers, if he doesn't take us out when he takes out the Spirit, then God lied about what he said in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Okay? So... Um, where that confused me, you did set me straight, uh, was that um, if the restrainer is taken out, then how do you come to Christ after the rapture? Same way. It's the same way, because the Holy Spirit is it's everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. And yes... I was saved post um, post rapture, but the train left. So, like, I'm still here, and yeah. I'm going to go through the. But the Holy Spirit is everywhere. You just have to suffer through yeah. because you didn't accept the Lord in the process. Absolutely. So, you, you you have to be understanding of what Paul is trying to say to us in those particular issues. But the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way, meaning the church is taken out of the way, and then these times come. Anyway, I had another thought, and I can't remember what it was, but that's okay because you get the point there. Um, uh, almost came back to me and it didn't. Okay. Anyway, um, where was I with that? Each part of the Godhead has its role. I read that. Um, God dwells in us. Again, it needs to be stressed that these words, the spirit who seals us and thus is in all. Okay. These words are speaking of unity and thus they are directed to the saved believers within the church. The words here in no way imply the universal fatherhood of God towards all the people in the world, which is what the Pope gets up and he says all the time. We all are children of God. We all have one father. He does that with the Muslims and, the, you know, they get together with their, their sessions and that is incorrect. Now, it is true that God is the father of all people. The Bible says that. But speaking of the relationship, okay, there's God the Father, the creator of all people, and then there's God the Father who is in relationship with this people, and that is what that is speaking of, okay? The word, what's that? Oh, yeah, through Christ, that's right. The universal fatherhood of God towards all the people in the world, it is speaking of the unique relationship between God and his select and sealed people, which is accomplished through believing in the work of Christ. That is what Paul is referring to, okay? We are not all children of God. I'm sorry. We're children of God in the sense of being created beings not in the sense of being united to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ. It's two different things that people need to make very careful that they make that distinction. And unfortunately, religious leaders do not do that. 
And so they, they have all these people around the world. Because, you know, when people see the Pope, unfortunately as, unfortunately as it may be, when they see him, they see him as the head of the church. He's the representative of what Christians believe. It doesn't matter if it's true or not. That is how the world perceives that. And when that man speaks and he says something like he says, all he is doing is infecting, unfortunately, the people in the church that believe him. I'm talking about the Roman Catholic Church. And then all of the people outside that say, see, we all serve one, one God. It's all one God. It's very, very sad what he does. Praying with other non-believers is not authorized in Scripture in any way, shape, or form. Okay? Life application. We are united in the body of Christ through the work of Christ. The old saying, blood is thicker than water, should. I'm not saying it does, but it should apply to all believers in their conduct toward other believers. Unfortunately, I know I fail with that, and I won't look, but if anybody wants to raise their hand, I'm sure you probably do too. It is understood that brothers argue, but they are also willing to defend one another. If we argue, let it be over pure doctrine. But let us endeavor to defend our fellow believers just as ardently against the world which comes against us because of our united faith in Christ. And at this time, we're living in a happy world where we're prosperous and we don't have persecution. And so it doesn't matter. We can fight with each other and we can... No, let me make my point, okay? (laughs) What I'm saying is you're you're interrupting me and I'm trying to make a point here. It does matter. I'm making, I'm, I'm being facetious about this, okay? We're living in this world where everything is fine and where it doesn't matter, okay? When Two months from now, the economy collapses, the, the Biden admin starts really persecuting people, and all of a sudden, these things that don't matter will matter. They will find out what is important. Remember what we read in this one about this guy here? He was a Roman Catholic, and then he became a Christian, and he burned with two other people, and I guarantee you, they did not have the same doctrine. If they sat down in a comfortable setting like we are in America right now, they would say, well, that doesn't matter, and you're an idiot, and your doctrine is bad, and I'm never going to talk to you again. That's what I was talking about when I said it doesn't matter. But when the flames start burning around you, all of a sudden, those things don't make any difference. What matters is that you are united with those people in Christ, and you're willing to give up your life for them. So let me finish my statement before you do that, because I'm trying to think through the thought, okay? Anyway, I'll read that again. If we argue, let it be over pure doctrine, but let us endeavor to defend our fellow believers just as ardently against the world which comes against us because of our united faith in Christ, okay? The point is that when you're fat, dumb, and happy, you don't think these things through, but when you're not, all of a sudden, you start thinking them through, and you say, well, that guy's a Christian. I may not agree with him on the principal tenets, but... I am going to stand for this person. And, you know, we see it even now when last year, what happened? They locked down all the churches and they said, you guys can't meet. And all of a sudden, all over America, you got people that that are not allowed to meet in a church with 10 people when other things could meet with 100 people. And they started saying, well, this is unfair. And guess what? The people in charismatic churches actually defended people in Baptist churches in other states, even though they don't agree on anything. When the persecution starts, we begin to unite, okay? We may not unite on the theology, but we will unite on the fact that we are Christians and we are suffering together, okay? And that was the point that I was making there. It was a very small example in America last year compared to a lot of the things that I get emails on constantly. People all over the world are going through terrible, to Canada, 
I mean, those people are just being, they're being barbecued up there for their faith. It just, it's unbelievable. And that's coming here really soon because of the administration that's in power right now. They're going to do everything they can to destroy Christianity as quickly as they can. They're working on it behind the scenes right now, and they're going to come out and they're going to do everything they can because Christianity is the force that is holding this nation together. Yeah, and it's it's the thing that is absolutely. So it's coming soon. we got 10 minutes and we got time. Four, seven, and we'll get one more and we'll be done. But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Okay, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Okay, that's a little different. Apportioned it in Christ's gift. Okay, therefore, I'm sorry, there is, unfortunately, an article in the original Greek which is not included in this translation. Now, I understand that just uh, if you go through the Greek, uh, one of my friends emailed me about this, and uh, it, the article is not always necessary to be translated, and sometimes it's it doesn't help anything, and sometimes it'll have uh, the article in some instances, and then the same type of instance, it won't have it in another one. I'm talking about in the Greek. But there are times when an article is just understood to be translated, and we should do it, and it isn't. Okay, that's what I'm talking about. There's an unfortunately an article in the original Greek which is not included in this translation. It says, but to each one of us, the grace was given. Okay, there are times where the grace doesn't need to be translated, but there are times when it should be. Okay, it is a specific grace, not a general one, which Paul refers to. This then is not speaking of things like salvation, eternal life, and so on. Rather, it is speaking of the grace which is bestowed upon a person for conducting their services for the Lord. An example of this would be Bezalel. Where was he? Anybody remember where Bezalel was mentioned? The what? The tabernacle. He was the guy that was... Uh, it, yeah, all of the gifts of building, he could do anything. And now, what was? Here's a question for you. Got Bezalel for the uh, tabernacle. Who was it that was in the same type of position for the temple? Come on, Burke, you got it. Begins with an H, ends with an M, has Ira in the middle. Hiram. There you go. Okay. Um, very good. You got that. You're you're good. Okay. Uh, what's that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, an example of this would be Bezalel, the main artificer of the tabernacle in the wilderness. Of him, it says in Exodus 31. Let me take you back to Exodus 31. Uh, yes, he was skilled in all of these things. And uh, hang on, 31. What do I want? I want three. Okay, 31 and three. Look back a little bit. Okay. And I have filled him. This is speaking of Bezalel with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and in all manner of workmanship to design artistic works, works to work in silver, I'm sorry, to work in gold, in silver, in bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of workmanship. Okay, so you've got Bezalel. And, you know, this is one of those things I wish that I include into this, but I didn't, is that his name, Bezalel, in, and then Selel uh, can mean shadow. But it can also be, uh, it's referring, or it's a very closely related to the word selem, which is image. And if you go back to the very beginning, it says in Genesis 2 or 3 that God made, or it might even be in Genesis 1, he made man Bethselem, in the image of God. And so what is this guy Bethselel is being the one to give us an image of Christ? Yeah, it's very interesting. So he's showing us that 
this this tabernacle is going to be something that represents in every single detail the true man, the man that replaces the first man, okay? Betzalel, Betzalem. It's just marvelous. Uh, Sergio found that one day when he was reading the Bible, and he says, oh, it's unbelievable. It's, it, the Bible is just way beyond us being able to grasp at any given time. So anyway, um, let's see here. That's Bezalel was given all those gifts. Bezalel was given the grace, the grace, to accomplish particular tasks which needed to be accomplished in the construction of the tabernacle. In Christ, we are given the same. The Lord is building his temple, and each of us is given such grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. I can, oh, I got it right here. Thank you. The, of Christ's gift. He is the Lord. It is his temple which is being built, and he is the one to apportion out what is necessary in order to accomplish this marvelous task. This grace is most certainly a part of our makeup as individuals. There's no reason to assume that this is some type of grace which is instilled in us after salvation. Okay, like Bezalel. He says, I have filled him with the Spirit. Does that mean that he didn't have those talents before? Probably not. He probably had them all along. And God is saying that I have endowed this man, even from his birth, at understanding how to do these things. There are people that are just in, inherently knowledgeable in certain things. It's like they can fix anything. Okay. Now, when he's in Christ, that can be applied to Christ as a gift of the Spirit because he is taking that and now using it for the glory of God. Everybody see that? So you don't have to suddenly say, well, I need, I, I need a gift from the Spirit. You already have it. God made you. You've got something you can use for the church, okay? This grace is most certainly a part of our makeup as individuals. There's no reason to assume that this is some type of grace which is instilled in us after salvation. Rather, we are each given abilities from the eternal mind of God based on our genetic makeup, our place in time and location, the education we have received, the mother that raised us and taught us something, the father that disciplined us, and so on. It is certainly more sensational to claim that we've been endowed with a special gift of the Spirit after salvation, but this has to be read into the grace we have been given as much as assuming that it is based on who we are as individuals. Either way, you have to read it in. I would certainly lean towards what you already are, and you are now a new person in Christ, and therefore you can take what you used to use for these purposes and apply them to Christ. Okay. It's already been done in uh, Exodus. Yes. Uh, with Pharaoh. With Pharaoh. That's absolutely right. I hardened his heart, right. I hardened his heart which he did not he harden just... his heart. He passively hardened his heart, not actively. Okay. So um, we are as individuals. In fact, in the calling of Jeremiah... His particular office was one which was ordained before his birth, as is recorded in Jeremiah 1, 4, and 5. Okay, so there you go. The Lord knew Jeremiah from his eternal mind, and he selected him from that state. He did the same thing with Paul. Paul had all of the knowledge that he needed to weave together what was going on in God and in Christ. Okay, he did get instruction but he had the foundation already. That's why God picked him. He picked the perfect person to fulfill the job that Paul filled, okay? Each person in the church is no different. Some are orators. Some are business people who can give. Some are janitors. Christ has determined the gift, and as it is a gift, it is unmerited. No person should think more highly of himself than he ought. Whatever we have is what we have received from God. And so we should rather mourn over not using our gifts to the fullest. 
The janitor who works out his duties to the highest degree possible is doing a better job than the pastor who whips out a cheesy sermon that took no effort to write, which will merely tickle the people's ears and which provides no insights in the marvel of Scripture which has been given for the building up of God's people. I guarantee you that if your bathrooms are clean because the janitor did a good job and the sermons are not well put together, the janitor receives or should receive a much better thank you on Sunday morning than that guy. Okay, life application and we are done. Whatever our gifts are, they should be used for the glory of the Lord and to the fullest measure of our ability. Anything else is to squander the gift that we possess. Yes, please. Read about the people in Nigeria being slaughtered. Absolutely. That's what I was thinking of, too. I'm glad you brought that up. So that's why I blurted out. Oh, yeah, and that was the point I was going to make, is that the people in Nigeria don't have the ease and comfort that we have. And so we're sitting here and we're thinking one thing because we've got it good. And you think about what's going on in the rest of the world, and that's, that's so I'm, thank you for clarifying that, but that's exactly what I was thinking of as people over there that are going through this right now, right now. And all of a sudden, all these things that we think we have do not matter. Okay, we got to close. Heavenly Father, we thank you very much for the chance to come and meet together in this uh, class and to learn your word and to share in it, how good it is to be in your presence, Lord, and to be with other believers and to share together in our thoughts and experiences and our hearts towards you. Thank you, Lord God. And we certainly pray for anybody that's going through difficult times right now, whatever they may be. And we would just pray that your hand would be with them and help them to understand that sometimes our difficulties are meant to be with us. That we should praise you and glorify you because of them and not to try to separate ourselves from them. Lord, help us to understand this because we all have our own difficulties and woes. And when we bring you glory through them, we are certainly doing what is right in your sight. So. We would pray that they would be taken away, but if they are not, we would pray that we would glorify you through them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Just on time. Okay, push this button here. There we go.